This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, we will be breaking down Smile Direct Club, the oral care company known for its affordable clear aligner treatment. Smile Direct Club was founded in 2014 as a direct-to-consumer alternative to metal braces. It has since expanded to serve over 1 million customers in both the U.S. and abroad. To help break down the business, I am joined by current CFO, Kyle Wales. In this breakdown, we discuss how Smile Direct Club differentiates itself relative to metal braces and clear aligner competitors like Invisalign. We touch on the company's D2C roots, how they've expanded TAM in the oral care market, and what growth opportunities the business plans to pursue moving forward. I'd highly recommend pairing this episode with our previous breakdown on Invisalign. It's fun to contrast the two business models and their respective histories. There are so many fascinating details about the clear aligner industry. I hope you enjoy this breakdown of Smile Direct Club. All right, Kyle Wales from Smile Direct Club. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, Let's start with the, the same question we ask everyone, which is, what is Smile Direct Club? And give us a sense for its footprint and scale. Sounds great. So we're a company whose mission is really focused on democratizing access to orthodontic care. We're doing that by making it affordable and convenient for everyone. So we're accomplishing that mission by leveraging our teledentistry platform, which makes care way more accessible, more convenient, but also more cost-effective as well, because we're removing what we call the three times markup that's associated with Invisalign or traditional metal braces and enable our doctors to serve the consumer directly without that markup that's associated with those products. Our size and scale, we're still a relatively young business, even though we're a public company today. The business was founded in 2014, but really took a couple of years after that to really start to scale the business. So we think about it as, call it a business that's just over five years old today. We're in 13 countries globally wow. around the world. We launched into our first country outside of North America in April of 2019 and already in 13 countries today, almost 20% of our revenue is coming from countries outside of the US and Canada. So it gives you a sense of the scale that we've achieved in a pretty short period of time. Looking back 12 months, what's the revenue in EBITDA of the business? How many different patients have you guys served? Just give us a sense for sort of the numbers behind the business. Since inception, we've treated well over a million patients to date. So think about the scale that's associated with that. If you look over the past 12 months, including the first quarter of this year, approaching 700 million in revenue, Pre-COVID, going back to, to 2019, we did about $750 million in revenue. EBITDA, we turned EBITDA positive actually one quarter ahead of expectations. So if you go back to Q3 of 2020, that was our first quarter of EBITDA profitability. We've been executing against sort of our longer-term plan that we've outlined. And so if you look at that plan, it calls for 20 to 30% annualized top-line growth over the next five years and ramping to 25 to 30% EBITDA margins over that time period. The unit economics with that, it's really kind of an 85% gross margin, 40 to 45% of revenue spent on sales and marketing, and 15% GNA. 
all that driving to that 25 to 30% EBITDA margin. If I'm a consumer out there, what is Smile Direct Club and how do I experience it in the world? The product itself, for those of you who don't know, ultimately is a clear aligner. And the objective that we're trying to do is straighten your teeth. And so if you're coming to us, our goal is to provide straight teeth as an end result of what you're looking for. And we try and provide different on-ramps for consumers to be able to do that. We're big believers in you've got to provide an omni-channel choice for consumers. And so we start by driving all that traffic to our website. And we're driving that traffic to the website today through a range of different ways. So one way is referrals. You know, about 20% of our business is coming through referrals today. You know, another option is just organically. So there's a large portion that's coming organically to the site or through marketing. So one option is you could start directly from your home. We could order an impression kit. We would ship that directly to your home. You could do the impression, which is effectively a mold, a 3D putty that you would get in a dental office, but we'll ship that to your house. You would do the mold, ship it back to us. And so that's one approach that you could start your journey. A second approach is you could make an appointment at one of our smile shops today. So we have about 125 permanent locations today around the country. We also do a lot of pop-up events where we could come into your city for two or three days and could do that in a dental practice, or we have traveling buses as well that act as smile shops. And so that's giving you an opportunity rather than doing the impression in your home, you would go to one of our locations, we would do a quick 3D intraoral scan, take pictures of your teeth as well. And then the third option is you could go into a dental practice. But at the end of all of those, what we're providing to the consumer is a 3D rendering of how their teeth are going to move throughout treatment. And so it shows them from where you are today, go out on average four to six months to the end of treatment. And here's how your teeth are going to move at every single stage throughout treatment. Ultimately, if the consumer elects to purchase, then we're going to manufacture the aligners. We do that 100% internally today, so we're fully vertically integrated. We're going to ship the aligners all at once directly to the consumer. And then they would use our teledentistry platform. We have a mobile app that they would interact with. They could interface with our doctors as needed as well to make sure they're tracking throughout their treatment, change their aligners every week to two weeks, depending on where they are within their treatment. You mentioned that the business is about five years old. Can you tell us a little bit about the founding story? What was the core insight that the founder saw that led to a successful business? The business was founded by Alex Finkel and Jordan Katzman and our current CEO and third founder as well, David Katzman. So David's Jordan's father. As I mentioned before, is founded back in 2014. But Alex and Jordan actually met at a summer camp back in Michigan when they were 14. And both had braces at the time. And years later, as they continued to become friends and ultimately business partners, they started to think about just different pain points that they had in their youth. And one of those pain points that they had was brackets and wires and, and overall metal braces. And as they kind of dug in and looked at the industry, they were looking at clear liners and Invisalign in particular, and sort of they came to the conclusion that there's no way the piece of plastic that goes into your mouth should cost five to $8,000 and started digging into what is causing the cost to ultimately be that high. And what they found is there was a massive markup that's associated with orthodontics. And if you think about core problems that are associated with any highly disruptive business around access, convenience, and cost, those problems certainly existed here, especially on the cost side. You know, if you look at David's background, has been in highly disruptive businesses his entire career, was one of the executives with Quicken Loans as well. And was deeply involved in the building of that business over the years. And so you know, a lot of the core problems that they've seen in other direct-to-consumer businesses were also very prevalent here. And so that was the opportunity that enabled them to dig in and really start doing the work here. 
And were there a couple of things that they made early on in terms of bets that seemed to really pay off in terms of building up the business and scaling it to being the leader in sort of this world? We're very big in A-B testing everything. And so as we started to dig in, put up the website, did some basic A-B testing on Google, just had overwhelming demand for the product from a very early stage. And so actually took the website down, started to build the infrastructure, build the platform that we were going to need to really kind of scale the business. But from day one, really saw overwhelming demand for the product itself. I think one thing that really catapulted the growth was certainly the rollout of the smile shops. And so initially, we were an impression kit only business. And what we found is as we started to open smile shops, we saw a material lift in just overall conversion that was happening. So from everyone that would come to the website, the likelihood of them to order an impression kit or book a scan was significantly higher in DMAs where we offered smile shops and impression kits together. So that was a key pivot point as well and sort of catapulted the growth as well back in 2017. I want to talk a lot about that decision in particular, how you guys came to it a little bit later. When they founded the business, the key thing was, hey, you can get something similar or the same, but for much, much cheaper than what Invisalign was doing at that time. Can you talk just a little bit about clear aligners? In my head, at least there's three buckets. There's the old school braces, there's Invisalign's product, and there's Smile Direct's product. Help us understand the differences between those from a consumer vantage point and maybe from also a business vantage point. Yeah. I mean, as you look at metal brackets and wires or Invisalign today, for both of those, you're going to be going into typically your orthodontist, more recently your dentist on the Invisalign side as well. But you're going in person to see your doctor face to face. I think the difference on our side is that with the power of our teledentistry platform, we're enabling you to interface with your doctor remotely. You're very similar standards of care, similar clinical outcomes and efficacy that you can expect to receive. But because of that teledentistry platform, we enable you to do your care remotely. In terms of case complexity, we can treat about 90% of the cases that are coming to us. There are certain cases with teens. So for example, someone has mixed dentition, which could be a baby tooth that hasn't fully erupted or a baby tooth that is partially erupted. There's a small subset of cases like that that we're not able to treat yet. Those are on the roadmap for cases that will be able to come in the future. But today, we're already treating about 90% of the cases that are coming to us. Just help us understand the market. So how many total cases are there per year, roughly? So in total, globally, there's about 15 million case starts on a global basis. About 4 million of those are in the US. Today, globally, about a third of the case starts are done through clear liners. So two-thirds of those cases are being done with metal brackets and wires today. You've got two-thirds that go through the old-school way You've got one third that go through the clear. What percentage go direct to the consumer, skip the orthodontic channel, or do you use the teledentistry platform? Of the 4 million, we have approximately 500,000. The 4 million I was referring to were case starts that were happening in practice. So those were happening at an office, whether it be an orthodontist or a GP, approximately 500,000 that we would do annually or in addition to that. So in the US today, closer to four and a half, if you include the case starts that we would treat. Got it. And in the case of the traditional wired braces and aligners, they charge how much typically? On average, it's five to 8,000. And same thing for Invisalign. Correct. And Smile Direct charges how much? 1950. 1950. Wow. I think the important part with the 1950, it's not just 1950. So we have two ways to pay. We have single pay, which is 1950, but we also have a Smile Pay program. And that program is $250 down, no credit check. Everyone is approved for the program. 
And then it's $89 a month over a 24-month period. You have to keep a card on file for those payments with us. But that program makes it affordable to almost anyone with that SmilePay program. It grows the market space in a very meaningful way when you can make it that accessible. Absolutely. Can you talk to us a little bit about, and especially with the direct-to-consumer model, so it sounds like whether you get Invisalign or traditional braces, you're spending five or eight grand and the cost structure there is you've got orthodontics, you've got the materials, you've got all these other pieces of it. The episode on Invisalign is a great way of break down that. Help us understand the smile direct economics. So you start at 1950. What actually happens? Like, What does the direct-to-consumer model do? How do you end up with being able to deliver it for so much cheaper and still build a great business? It really goes back to the markup that I talked about before. If you look at our gross margins, it's relatively similar today to where Invisalign is in the the low to mid 70%. Our gross margin over time, we expect that to be closer to 85%. We have a lot of automation we can talk about that we're continuing to implement and focus on. So today we're in the mid 70s from a gross margin perspective. The difference from a consumer perspective is Invisalign would sell on average, say $1,200 to $1,300, somewhere in that range. And there's different prices depending on the product that you would ultimately buy. But that price is what they're selling to the orthodontist at. The ortho then is going to turn that around mark it up at least three times and sell that back to the consumer. And part of that is for the overall cost of their services as well. But a big part of that is really a markup that we've had the opportunity to step in and disrupt that. And so as we've eliminated that, we still have very strong unit economics associated with our business. So if you look at the longer term economics that we've outlined, an 85% gross margin today, we're already in the mid 70s and we're tracking well to get to that 85, spending 40 to 45% of revenue on sales and marketing. Today, we're slightly ahead of that as we continue to invest in the international aspects of our business that we're spending a lot more on. Then the part that we'll really start to get leverage from as we grow the top line is G&A. So we've built a base of G&A to support a much bigger business than what we have today. And we'll start to get leverage from that over time. And so built the P&L in a way that we can get back to that same 25 to 30% adjusted EBITDA margin. But because we don't have that three times markup associated with traditional providers, it's much more cost-effective from a consumer perspective while still getting back to that 25 to 30% adjusted EBITDA margin. Yeah, that's great. And so it sounds like in Visalign's case, they sell the aligners for twelve to 1300 to the dentist. In your case, it's almost like you sell it. I'm just doing back the envelope math here. You sell it for 1950 to the customer, 40 to 5% of that goes to marketing, which is eight, 900 bucks. So it's almost like you sell them at the same price. But in one case, the rest of what goes into the price is essentially the sales and marketing expenses associated with getting it direct to that consumer. Am I thinking about it in the right way? Yeah, that's right. So we're going to spend in the range that you would outline 40 to 45% of the 1950 on sales and marketing. But then there's no 3x markup, again, on top of that, that a traditional provider would put on. Let's talk a little bit about that 40 to 45%. Walk through kind of what the funnel looks like for someone. How does $800 or $900 translate into acquiring a customer? Walk us through the funnel a little bit and then talk about the different pieces, digital marketing versus the sales. And and then I want to go from there into the the shops that you guys opened. That's a blended number. It's both marketing and selling together. We don't disaggregate the marketing aspect of that versus the selling aspect of that. But if you think about the marketing side, we use what's called a multi-touch approach. So we've got about 60% of our spend that's online today. We've got about 40% of our spend that's offline. In the offline portion, about 30% of that 40% is TV. So TV is an important component of how we spend in the offline. The remainder, at least pre-COVID and post-COVID, as we start to reopen, is sort of things like out of home, as a good example. 
or events or concerts or other aspects like that. The 60% portion that's online is across dozens of different platforms. Obviously, the big ones that you would expect to see in there, be it Facebook or Google as good examples of that. And so someone might become a lead today for someone who does become a lead for us, meaning we capture their email today. And we generally do that through smile assessment that we do on our website. There's sort of two paths that a member would take from there. You've got about 60% or so of those leads that convert pretty quickly. So within the first few months of becoming a lead, they ultimately purchase aligners. For the remainder, it's actually a pretty long tail. What would happen is they become a lead and then something would drive them to say, now's the right time ultimately to straighten my teeth. It could be some sort of life event, like a wedding or a new job or a birthday or something like that. But that tail is pretty long. You know, On average, it's up to a year. But we have about 15% of the business that bought last quarter that was over 24 months old from the time that they became a lead. And so there's obviously a pretty complex acquisition funnel within there. Our CRM streams are an important component of that as well. So constantly keeping in touch and communicating with potential club members as well through email and other domains like that. You mentioned earlier that there's three ways that you can essentially start to get the treatment. So there's getting the kit home, there's going into a shop or there's going into an an office. Is that the way you guys think about marketing and sales? Is it, let me drive a person to the shop or to the kit. And then from there, let's get them a treatment plan. That's kind of the sell, if you will, or help us understand kind of how the marketing and sales connect to each other. In a short answer, no. We focus on driving people to the website and providing an omni-channel choice for them to choose how they want to start their journey. And for us, from a financial perspective, we're relatively indifferent within there. Obviously, very different funnels and conversion timelines. But from everyone who orders an impression kit to booking a scan, the ultimate number of people that would purchase aligners from that is relatively similar across those channels, different sort of time horizons as to which they ultimately convert. And so we believe in giving them a choice, impression kit, smile shop, or a GP practice. And if you look at our shops, our shops are non-traditional retail. So we have very few storefront locations. They're generally in a shared salon is a great example of a location that we would have a smile shop. And so that shop isn't actually driving any demand. No one's walking by a shared salon and saying, hey, I want to straighten my teeth today. We're driving that traffic to the website and they're choosing to, like I said, take one of those different options. And what we found over time is the likelihood of someone to show up and the likelihood of someone to book an appointment and then ultimately show up. It didn't matter if we were, say, five to 10 minutes away from where they were or if we were 35 minutes away from where they were booking their appointment from. Now, clearly there's a drop-off point there if you get too far away, but we've been able to operate the business coming out of COVID with a significantly fewer number of smile shops, but not really have an impact on demand because we've got the ability for people to drive to their appointment generally within, call it 30 to 40 minute drive time frame. And so we've got today about 125 permanent locations, but we use this concept as well of a pop-up location where we could go into, say, a city that has 500,000 people We don't have a permanent location there that's open, say, five days a week, but we might go in there once a month for three days, partner with a dental practice and draw out incremental demand from that city that way. I want to double click even a little bit further into direct-to-consumer economics, just because it seems so core to what was pioneered here and what you guys have become great at. You mentioned, obviously, acquiring a lead, and that's sort of a person raising their hand going, hey, I'm interested in this. I want this. That comes from, as you said, television and potentially out of home and digital marketing. What does a lead cost typically? It's actually not something that we've disclosed. We haven't broken it out. I'll just make up a number just for the purpose of understanding, like illustrating the business. Let's say it's a hundred bucks. I just made that number up. 
Talk to me a little bit about this. I mean, the shops thing seems like a really interesting, not something maybe you would have guessed when you first started the business that then has become, I think, pretty core to the business. How much better, like what was the impact the shops had versus the kind of at-home kits? Cost you $100 for a lead. Was it one times better converting? Was it five times better? Like, just give us a sense for what the shops did and why shops became the major form of how the business comes into the market or provides treatment. Stat that we've talked about publicly before is if you look at prior to having a shop within a DMA, say Atlanta, as a good example, back when we were an impression kit only business, what happened in that DMA after we opened up the smile shops? We saw about a 15 to 20% lift in conversion. So everyone who was coming to the website, the likelihood of them to ultimately order an impression kit or book a scan was 15 to 20% higher in that market when we offered both versus if we offered one. So if you think about that from an acquisition perspective, we've acquired that lead. They're coming to the website. And for the same dollar, it's going 15 to 20% farther by getting someone ultimately to book. And if you think about the process engineering behind that, it's a very, very complex business for not only getting people to take that initial step and order an impression kit or book a scan, but also to get them to return the kit or show up to their appointment, or if they're on site, ultimately convert. Because there's always, as with any highly considered purchase, this has been a lifeline problem for many people. They've been thinking about doing it for a long period of time. And something's happened to say, now is the right time for me to ultimately want to straighten my teeth. And so we have to capitalize on that opportunity while that lead is still hot. And so if two days goes by or three days go by or more, the likelihood for them to ultimately convert is significantly less than if we can convert that lead on day one. And so those are just kind of a few examples of the importance of not only the impression kit or the smile shop, but also just the complexity of the acquisition funnel that sits behind that as well. And the smile shop, was that something that was on the roadmap or did it happen by accident or a test or how did that come to be? Not on the roadmap when the company first started. You know, it was really impression kit only. It came as a result of a you know, sort of an idea. So we have these sync meetings where the leadership team, we all sit in these executive meetings and different teams are coming through. And what those meetings kind of do for us is enable us to be a very agile business. We A-B test everything and shops were no exception to that. So we opened up our first location. We're able to see the incrementality from the DMA where we first opened and the impact that it had on that city. And very quickly scaled it as a result of that. And same thing coming out of COVID as well. So we shut down all of our shops. If you go back to March of last year, we closed all of our smile shops across the country. We brought marketing spend down by about 90%, but our demand was only down about 60% in terms of revenue. Almost all of that was through impression kits. And so Mm. it shows just the versatility of the business. But coming out of that, we looked at the incrementality in every single DMA as we would reopen smile shops to make sure that people actually wanted to go back out and they would book appointments and they would show up. And so I think it just speaks to kind of the philosophy as a business that we have around A-B testing and the overall agility that we've seen. You mentioned COVID. So why don't we double click there? Like COVID for everyone was a huge surprise. What did you see in the business when it first happened in the first month or two? Then how did it end up retooling and growing through COVID? Really weren't sure what to expect. We weren't sure how consumers would react. Would people still want to straighten their teeth in the uncertain times that we ultimately were in. And so, as I said a minute ago, the end of March, early April of 2020, we actually closed all of our smile shops. We closed our manufacturing center only for about a week. So we're able to keep manufacturing open pretty much throughout COVID. Week to two weeks, we were down. What we did is shift entirely to an impression kit model. As people would come to the website, we would give them the opportunity to buy an impression kit. 
And that aspect of our business really didn't change. We continued to offer that to consumers throughout COVID. But about a month after being down, we started to very slowly and selectively reopen our smile shops. And so we did that in a way, like I said before, where we looked at the incrementality of what happened in a given DMA. So taking Atlanta as an example, as we opened a shop there in addition to impression kits, what was the likelihood of someone to take either one of those actions on the website? And ultimately, what was the profitability of that DMA by offering one or the other versus both? So we did that on a national basis across every single city. And that really reframed where and how we opened our smile shops. What were the most interesting learnings? We shifted kind of pre-COVID to a a model that was call it 90% of demand going through our smile shops and only about 10%, 10 to 15% that was coming through impression kits. If you look at that today, that's much closer to 50-50 coming through impression kits and smile shops. And we've got our GP aspect as well and our GP partnerships, which is much newer, but growing quickly and nicely as a third component of that. And so I think what it showed is just the, the ability for consumers to truly desire that omni-channel approach. You have a group of consumers that will only do impression kits. You have a group that will only go into a smile shop. And you've got a blend that will do both. And so we had to find that balance of operating our shops at a higher utilization, but at the same time, also not impacting booking rates as well, which was obviously a key balance to make sure we're not impacting growth but also doing at optimal profitability levels. And we've also, coming out of it, leveraged our pop-up events, as I said before, in a much bigger way. Earlier, you mentioned 4 million cases a year happening inside of an orthodontist's office. You guys add an additional half a million. I'm curious to go into this unique market dynamic you guys have cracked. So it used to be you had to have five or 6,000. Maybe you could get financing, maybe not, in order to get Invisalign. You guys came along and said, wait, $2,000. By the way, with a credit card, you can have it every month for $89. Talk to us about what parts of the market you've opened and some of the interesting learnings that have come from that. If you look at our core demographic, we're about 60% female, we're about 40% male on average. But if you look at average household income, we'll skew as low as 30000 and as high as 120000 and above. But the core sweet spot is, say, 70000 in household income. So it's truly a consumer that likely couldn't afford Invisalign and couldn't afford to pay five to $8,000. And because of the price point of 1950, but also the price point with SmilePay, making it affordable to almost everyone at $89 a month, we've truly democratized access, which is, as I said at the start, the mission of what we're all going after, but democratized access to care and made it affordable to everyone. I think the next evolution that we're going through as a company and, and as an industry as well is why would you pay, regardless how much money you have, why would you pay five to $8,000, even if you could afford it, if you can get the same safe and clinically effective outcome using a teledentistry platform and using our platform and our doctors versus going in person and paying that three times markup. If you're going to get a very similar outcome, there's no reason to do one versus the other. And so I think that's the next mm-hmm. evolution of where we go as a company and where we go as an industry if you look at it historically, we've truly expanded the industry and we've expanded the number of people that are coming into it, but we've done it in a very sort of core demographic that's in this call at 65 to 70,000 in household income. Big opportunity for us to take share from that aspect of the 4 million case starts today is to drive the consumer that actually can't afford to pay, but realizes there's no reason for them to do that. I'm curious, why is that the opportunity versus actually just taking more share of the people who can't afford it? I think it's both. I was referring to the 4 million case starts in particular. If you look right. at the 4 million case starts in particular, that's a group of consumers that can afford to pay the five to $8,000. Right. 
you mentioned how early this market feels. And when I hear you talk, it's like, there's a bunch of people who could never afford this. They now can afford it. I mean, it sounds like a massive market size. Can you talk about how you guys think about where the market is today, where it's going, and how this product expands the market size? Our view, broadly, is if you look globally, there's about 90%, close to 90% of all people who have some type of crowding or spacing. And not just US-based, it's a global problem, obviously. We think about 75% of that opportunity is outside of the US. So about 25% of it is within the US. And if you means test that for affordability at the $89 per month that we offer SmilePay at, there's about 500 million people globally that can actually afford to pay that as well. So if you do the math on that, it's pretty close to a trillion dollar market opportunity. You look at sort of 500 million people that can actually afford treatment and have some type of crowding or spacing. It's a very, very small percentage of people that are actually getting treated annually. And so our belief is we're in the very, very early stages of adoption from a market perspective and see a a long runway ahead of where we believe this market can go over time. Yeah, that's amazing. You mentioned international and you mentioned that you guys are also in 13 countries already. Talk to us a little bit about how you guys have prioritized international. You just said 75% is outside the US actually. Yeah, so we've started to do that more. Our first country was in Canada actually in late 2018. But outside of North America, our first country was the UK in April of 2019. And if you look at the global opportunity, 75% being outside the US, we think now is the right time for us to really start to push into a lot of those markets. So we're expecting to add, call it five to seven countries per year is what we're looking at for the current roadmap and pushing more for adoption in those countries versus the US. I think if you look at what would cause us to change that, we'd have to kind of see a change in the competitive landscape here in the US that would make us think we're more in a land grab for case starts here and kind of refocus our growth focus here domestically. And what are the big differences and learnings as it relates to executing in some of these new countries? Every country is a little different. And so it could be regulatory aspects of the business model itself and how we have to set it up. We go through a gating process where we spent a lot of time on the front end looking at not only the regulatory setup and the legal setup as well, but also, can you market a medical device? And how can you market a medical device, be it on TV or social media or other aspects of that? Consumer preference is a big one. So Germany is a good example. In Germany, we actually put a doctor in our shops. And that's not necessarily a regulatory requirement, but the German consumer felt more comfortable from the research that we did actually having a dentist in the location as they were going in. And so we actually put a dentist in all of our shops there. So the important takeaway is just that every market is going to be a little bit different. And what we've seen is we've got to be agile and flexible to meet the demands of that market to drive adoption and penetration over time. And we've had good success thus far. Like I said, we launched it just over 24 months ago, but it's already about 20% of our revenue. So growing very quickly. You mentioned competition and the land grab aspect or the lack of land grab aspect in the United States. Reputationally, this is a really competitive market. In the Invisalign episode, we talked about how they've had a lot of lawsuits against different players. What's your vantage point on competition in this marketplace? And talk to us about some of the specific competitors. I think the choice that consumers are making today is, do I want to go in person to see my doctor, be it an ortho or a dentist? Or do I want to use a teledentistry platform? And I think if they choose the latter, we have the brand and scale and the awareness overall that at least historically, we've generally won that. And I think that shows in just size and scale that we're at today and the head start that we've had there. I think if they're choosing to go in person to an ortho, today Invisalign is winning that. So if you look at just the scale that they have over some smaller competitors, and it's been a long time where I think people have kind of been saying that. There's going to be competitors coming into this space, and there's a lot of other 
big companies that have small clear liner businesses that have thousands of dental practices that are in their network that they could sell into. And I think they've found it difficult to get adoption. And part of that reason is just how complicated this business is. It's an extremely complex business. If you think about the manufacturing aspect of it, for us today, we're making millions of clear liners a month. Every single one is a little bit different. And let's say you've got on average 30 different aligners throughout the course of your treatment. If you switch to your next one as part of your treatment and it doesn't fit, you're going to be extremely upset. That's not going to be a good experience as you're going through treatment. And so it's an incredibly complex back-end and vertically integrated model. And I think others have found it difficult to build on that side of the market what Invisalign has been able to build there. Invisalign has been in the, in the space for 20 years. They have a certain type of product and a vertically integrated product. You guys also have a vertically integrated product. I understand from a marketing perspective how you guys compete very differently. How are you guys differentiate from them from a product perspective or compete with them from a product perspective? Obviously, they have a lot of IP over their platform. We have a lot of IP over our platform. So I think it's going to be difficult for others to try and replicate what we've built within the space, especially on the manufacturing side. But even more broadly than that, our Smile Shop patent is a great example of strong IP that we have around the process of our Smile Shop. So I think it's going to be hard for others, like I said, to kind of replicate what we've built because of that IP. But if you think about the cases that we can treat today, like I said before, we, today we're treating about 90% of the cases that are coming to us, which I think is a good example of sort of the types of cases and just the amount of complexity that we can treat today with our platform. And that's continued to improve over time. And we expect that to continue to improve. So mixed dentition is a great example of that. It's a platform that we have on the roadmap for the next several years here that will enable us to continue to treat teeth that are sort of in that higher complexity for teens that are 12 or 13 or 14 years old, where they might have a partially erupted baby tooth or a baby tooth that's not completely erupted yet. So that's a good example of what we have on the roadmap to come. But today, we're already treating about 90% of the cases that are coming. You guys have a unique relationship with Invisalign. Can you talk about the history of that relationship? Obviously, there's been litigation historically, so can't say too much around it. But they were an investor initially. They owned about just under 20% of the company. And there was obviously a lawsuit where they were opening retail locations. And we believe that was in violation of some of the agreements that we had between the companies. And so we took exception to that from a legal perspective. And obviously, we ended up winning that. So we were able to buy back the equity stake that they owned, which was obviously a great return for our shareholders at the time as well. And if you look at it today, we're competitors in the market and fierce competitors and are going after similar consumers, but doing it in very different ways. So we think our value proposition stacks up very competitively to what they're offering today out in the market. How do you see the market playing out in like the five to 10 year horizon, and especially with technology and the way that technology is shifting here? It's been an industry that's been built on technology, right? If you think about what's enabled clear aligners, it's been the treatment planning software itself and the evolution of that over time. That's enabled it to, uh, over time, take on more complex cases as well. So I think technology is sort of the underpinning of what's enabled clear aligners to launch. And I, I think that's going to continue. So if you look at our platform today, as I said before, treating about 90% of the cases, that's only going to continue to improve as we improve upon our technology. But there's also opportunities around that as well. So direct print is a term that a lot of people can throw around in the industry that there are a lot of different competitors that are focused on today. I think there's other aspects of scanning technologies as well that a lot of people are focused on. And the line's done a good job of that by vertically integrating with inside the dental practice to offer a scanning product, which 
enables adoption of their Clearliner product as well. So I think technology is going to continually make it easier for consumers to adopt the product. And today, as a good example, we're focused on a lot of different AI for not only internal purposes to improve treatment planning as a good example, make it more efficient as well, but also externally as well to drive conversion and to help people convert into clear aligners. In the 10-year horizon, if everything goes to plan for you guys for Smile Direct, what do you think are the top two or three biggest opportunities you need to go out and capture to win? Yes, certainly the international market. It's 75% of the global opportunity. And today it's close to half of case starts for clear aligners, but it's only about 20% of our business. So massive opportunity for us to go after. The team market is another one. So the team market, we haven't talked a lot about that, but it's actually about 75% of all case starts. So if you look at those 15 million case starts globally, teens are about 75% of that. For our business, it's only about 10% of our business today. And so that's another big opportunity that we're very focused on. And then the third is the professional channel, the GP channel. We think if you look at GPs in particular, It's a big opportunity for the consumer that wants to start their journey in person, but loves the brand and loves the product. And so we've actually started selling through dental practices as well. And we think that's an important growth opportunity. And so a very different model there than what we're going after. It's not a wholesale model, but you'll be leads of a dental practice. And we're giving dental practitioners the opportunity to sell Smile Direct Club, but do it in a way where they do the initial scan. They upload all that information, so the assessment, the oral pictures, the scan itself, they upload all of that into our teledentistry platform, but then our doctor network takes over the process from there, and we treat that process no different or that patient no different than one of our traditional patients that went into a smile shop or ordered an impression kit. And so we think that's a big opportunity. We launched that first pilot that we did in the summer of last year. We started scaling that in the fall of last year, already in over 1,500 practices to date. So that's something that is scaling up nicely for us as well. On the GP, is the price the same and are the economics roughly the same? Yeah, the price is the same to the consumer. No difference in pricing. I think the unit economics for us for today, I I would say they're similar to the traditional business. We do think there's opportunities over time because what happens is we're not only accepting patients that are coming from their leads, but we're also going into their practice and doing things like pop-up events as a good example. And if you think about the average dental practice, I mean, this is increasing the revenue of their practice. It's doing it in a very profitable way because there's very little chair time involved and associated with that assessment itself. But they're also getting the added benefit of the leads that are coming in from us into their practice. And so if an average practice is only growing a few percent a year, If we're bringing in 100 patients over the course of a weekend, they have the opportunity to convert a significant number of those into new dental home patients at their practice. And the lifetime value of that is, say, three dollars to $5,000. So we can have a meaningful impact on their practice as well, which is something they really like. So I think over time, we could see potentially the economics on that aspect of the business becoming slightly better than where they are today. But we've modeled it initially, assuming it's comparable unit economics to the core business. Yeah, it's almost like a reseller like a value-add reseller type relationship. I love that. Exactly. In the teen market you mentioned, I can't understand why rubber bands and metal still exist sitting in my <laughs> little I know. Why is there that disparity? I mean, between your guys' percentage case stars, I understand Invisalign somewhat similar. How have metal and braces persisted so as long as they have? And how do you guys yeah. win that market? How do you win in the teen market? If you think about the teen market in particular, you've got the aspect of the parent and the teen. And you've got to convince them to say clear liners are better than brackets and wires. 
but you've also got to win over the dentist as well, or the orthodontist. And so there's inertia on the ortho side where they've always been in brackets and wires, and it's a more traditional sort of aspect of their practice. And so the cost of brackets and wires are pennies on the dollar compared to the twelve to $1,300 on average. And so I think many look at that as a more profitable aspect of treatment that they can put patients through from the orthodontic side. I also think there's a concept of parents being concerned around compliance, where they're concerned if their teens are actually going to wear clear liners <laughs> or are they going to take them out of school and sort of not put them back in. And a couple of sort of core examples as we think about it for what's prevented the adoption of clear liners historically. I think another aspect is just concerns from a parent perspective historically is are you going to get the same outcome? And that partially goes back to compliance, but are you going to get the same outcome with clear liners as you would with brackets and wires? And I think generally people are starting to realize that you're going to get the same outcome for most of the cases. There are certain cases where from a complexity perspective, brackets and wires might still be a better fit or you might have to pull a tooth or something like that before starting treatment. But I think people are sort of overcoming and realizing you're going to get a great outcome with clear liners. Yeah, with teenagers, you just have to stick it to their teeth. <laughs> Maybe exactly. if you guys have an alarm connected to the thing when you remove it, then... Uh... <laughs> it's coming. We got some cool stuff and we haven't spoken about it a lot, but we got some big things that we're focused on innovation right now. And, and one of those aspects is how do we solve that problem for parents of teens? And there's a lot of other aspects of focusing a product on the teen market as well, because it's such a big opportunity. It just hasn't been a focus point historically. But as you think about sort of long-term drivers of growth and adoption, teens being 75% of all case starts, it's clearly a massive opportunity that we're starting to go after. And we've really started to think about how do we position the product and the business model to better serve not only the team themselves, but also the parent as well, and ensure the parent that they're going to get a good outcome and the team's actually wearing their aligner product as well. When you look down that same five, 10-year horizon for the business, what are sort of the biggest risks and challenges that you guys have to navigate to keep winning and moving in the right direction? Yeah, I think for us, just being a young business, like I said, just over five years old, we've got to continue to execute. As we look at it, that's sort of the biggest risk that we see as a business. We've got a lot of growth in front of us and a lot of key initiatives that we're focused on, as I said, be it international growth or the teen market or the professional channel and selling into GPs or the aspects of innovation, some of the R&D stuff that we've talked about that we're going after. But obviously, all of that requires a lot of execution. And for a young business, that can cause some volatility at times. And I think you've seen that if you look back at the business over the past several quarters, you've seen a little bit of that volatility. And we've got to continue to sort of execute against the longer term roadmap that we've outlined. And for us, that's the big focus. And I think obviously, that's going to be the biggest risk as well to make sure we continue executing against that. Can you talk a little bit about, I know the ADA and the AAO, some of these associations via state governments and FTC have filed complaints or challenges to the business. Can you just talk a little bit about how you guys have dealt with those risks and challenges and gotten them to a better place? I think they've been different kind of depending on the state. I mean, initially, it was really around sort of corporate practice of dentistry. I think we've sat in front of the boards and helped them understand the model itself and the DSO aspects that we've taken to that model. I think, look, anytime you do something disruptive, the status quo is certainly going to push back on that, especially if it's going to impact their pocketbook as well. And so I think you've seen that on the ortho side. The reality is for the dental side, we've been great for the dental market. We've brought awareness to the category as a whole. If you think about oral health after someone has gone through treatment, people take much better care 
of their oral health after going through treatment. We're referring patients into GP practices and driving adoption for dentists and have been a good partner for dentists. So I can see it on the on the ortho side. I think it doesn't make quite as much sense as we think about the dental market. We think we've been a great partner for dentists overall. The fight that we've seen more recently is more around places like Alabama or Georgia are good examples where they're either leveraging old laws or trying to enact new laws around the use of intraoral scanners and whether or not doctor has to be involved in that. I think we're in obviously good positions and have done well across both of those and have had good success with the FTC. We've had good success with the National Advertising Division as well, or NAD. And just making sure what people are out there saying about us is factual and accurate and true. And that's what we care mostly about. And I think as people truly get an accurate understanding of what we offer and the safety and efficacy of the product, I think we show as well as anyone out there. And we're very focused on just making sure consumers have the opportunity to truly understand the benefits of what our teledentistry platform can bring to the market. The three questions we sort of end with, lessons for builders, lessons for investors, and then places for further study. So let's just take them one at a time. If you're an executive or an entrepreneur out there, when you think about the story of Smile Direct, what's the big lesson? <laughs> As with any new company, startup company, whatever you might want to call it, You've got to have a strong stomach, I would say, as you look at any highly disruptive industry. I think we've had to weather a lot of storms and we've had to be incredibly agile. I think the agility is probably the most important aspect around being able to A-B test, learn the results of that, adapt and evolve, and then implement and continue to do that day in and day out, something that is critically important. If I had to pick just one thing, I think the agility aspect is something that we do very well as an organization and is critical for any company, especially one that's as young as we are today. Yeah, that's great. What about lessons for investors from the Smile Direct story? So you've got to focus on the long term. I think if you look at our business, we're in the very early stages of, like I said, a massive opportunity. And for investors that take a long-term view, we think we've performed very well over a long period of time from inception till now and have the opportunity in the platform and the barriers to entry to do the same over the next 10 years that we've done in the last five. And so we encourage people to take a very long-term view, less so on the quarter-to-quarter aspects of being a public company, especially for a young company such as us as well. You got to focus on the long-term. And anyone who wants to learn more about clear aligners and teledentistry and other places, where would you direct them? Yeah, obviously our website is a great place, smiledirectclub.com, but I think there's aspects as well, just organically out in the web where you can learn a lot about it. We've got a lot of great dental partners and general practitioners that are part of the network. And you can ask your dentist and get up to speed that way as well. And certainly friends and family. I think there's been a lot of people that have been through treatment, have had great experiences. And I think that's another good aspect to uh, get up to speed on the experience that people have had going through Clear Aligners. Awesome. Well, Kyle Wales, thank you so much for being on Business Breakdowns. This is awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this Business Breakdown of Smile Direct Club. I found the iterations for distribution fascinating, specifically how they started in D2C, then opened storefronts and are now leveraging both in different ways. If you enjoyed this episode, I would also point you to our episode on Invisalign. You will learn more than you can imagine about the fascinating clear aligner industry. It's one of the most profitable and fastest growing markets I've ever seen. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com.